All right. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. So thankful that you're here with us. Uh, Man, who really dug the snow this past week? That was pretty cool, right? Uh, Okay. I'm curious now. How many of you was that the first time you saw snow? A second, right? <laughs> right? I'll have you know, it's been twice, right? And 2004 was one of those, right? Okay, very cool. I was just curious. I, I was just wanting to see. Uh, man, I always have a brain fart at this part. What are we doing? We're going to be in James. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So if you would like to open your Bible, if you'd like to load your Bible on your phones, please go ahead and do so. Uh, and I'll just... I'll just kind of rant on for a little bit. So for the past couple of months, we've been in a series titled Faith in Action, uh, walking through a study in uh, the book of James. It's been incredibly practical, but also wonderful for us as a church to walk through uh, this series. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin to land the plane uh, in in James. And so beginning with chapter 5, this is the last chapter. uh, So we're going to begin to land this plane in James, right? And so what what I would say is, as we open up these couple of verses... Excuse me. As we open up these a couple of verses, uh, the tendency that you might have is is going to be to check out, and uh, let me encourage you not to do so. Let me let me keep your attention for the next two hours. Kidding, but let me keep your attention for the next couple of minutes and uh, and stay with me. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in my time of study of James, I've talked about it from up here for a few times. Uh, James goes from topic to topic. Uh, he doesn't really have this. Co- cohesive theme. Um, I mean, even though you can find a main or a couple of main themes in, in the book of James, when you see him writing, he's going from topic to topic, jumping around from discussion to discussion, exhorting, encouraging, arguing, uh, and then pushing back. And so what we're going to see in chapter five is actually something he begun to talk about in chapter two. And uh, as, as we look at this opening or these opening verses of chapter five, uh, what we're going to do is slightly go back to some of the arguments that he made in chapter 2, see how they connect, and then further see how they expand to you and I in this section. So here's what I'll do, because we're only looking at five verses. I'll read these verses, uh, and, then, and then I'll pray, and then we're going to park, or, or yeah, we're going we're gonna to spend our time, we're going to park at verse 1. So Joe, uh, let, me, let, me pray, well, let me read these, and then I'll pray. You can tell I've had a lot of coffee. Here we go. Uh, verse one, he writes, come now. Now I will say this pre-teaching moment, right? Uh, we saw this last week. Every time in James, you see the words come now. That means that a warning is coming. All right. So here we go. He says, come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start uh, verse 1. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, as we, Lord, as we begin our times, my, my, my prayer is one, that I would be set aside that I would be set aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking through me uh, to, to your people. Number, number two, Lord, I pray that, that hearts would be um, uh, not distracted and receptive to the message of your word. Uh, number, number three, as we begin to receive your word, Lord, let us not suppress it because we just simply don't like it, but let us uncomfortably embrace it so that we would repent of our sin and trust in your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning. We thank you for uh, the weather this week. Often uh, when, it's, when it's as gorgeous as it is out today, I am reminded of, uh, of Romans 2, where through Paul you say that the kindness of your heart should lead us to repentance. And, uh, and, and so the kindness of your heart was speaking very sweetly to us this morning with 55 degree weather. And so I pray that that would be uh, a reminder of your grace, your provision, your generosity, uh, and that it would lead us ultimately to repentance so that we would worship you um, freely. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. Verse one, we're going to stay here for a while. There's really two sections that I'm going to unpack. It's just verse one and then two through six. So we're going to be in in one for for quite a bit. So I'll reread it because uh, when you read verse one, I think some will will want to check out. And this is why. So he writes, come now, you rich. Let's park right there. Some of you have already checked out because you're like... (laughs) The rich. I'm not rich. I'm going to the value menu at Burger King. I am definitely not rich, right? No, this is going to apply to you uh, because we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and rebuke. And so he writes, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. One thing that you're going to notice in this entire section of, of scripture is that James is going to use really, really harsh language. Now, I talked about the language he used last week and that being pretty, pretty rough, pretty hard. And that is, that is still true. But the difference here is that that language last week was geared specifically toward the church. Here he's addressing non-Christians. So the question that we first must ask as we begin to unpack verse 1 is, why is he addressing non-Christians as he's writing this to the church? That's the first question that we need to ask ourselves. Why is he writing this or why is he addressing non-Christians, people who do not belong to Jesus, people who do not submit and follow to the lordship of Jesus? Why is he addressing them as he is writing to the church? The second question that you should probably be thinking through or that we're going to answer as we move forward is, well, if he's addressing non-Christians, then ultimately, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? Because it looks like not only is he addressing non-Christians, but he's addressing wealthy people. And uh, yeah, that might not be me. But let me, let me, let me just tell you uh, that, it, that it ultimately will apply to you. So those are the two questions that we're going to seek to answer. And so here's what I would start. First, James rebukes the rich in this section. He's going to rebuke the rich, not necessarily because of their wealth, but because of their misuse of that wealth. Okay? He's, not, he's not ripping on them because of their wealth, but because of their misuse of that wealth. And it involves the church. It involves you and I, because you and I so often will envy the rich. You and I will so often envy the rich. In fact, John Calvin says it this way. He says, James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. 
right? So that's what, that's what John Calvin says, right? That because so often we envy the rich of the status, this isn't only a rebuke to the ungodly rich, but it is also a warning to the church. So that's, that's number one. That's one point that we're making. The second point that we're making is that this applies to us for a couple of reasons, right? This, this will apply to us for a couple of reasons. Here, here's the first one. The first one is, it's not a question of whether or not it's good to be rich. The question is, are you godly in spite of your finances, in spite of your wealth? This is something that we visited in chapter two a couple of weeks ago. So again, the question isn't whether or not it's good or bad to be rich. The question is, in spite of your wealth and socioeconomic status, are you godly? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. And I'll, and I'll expand on that through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment, that is satisfaction, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content." Right? Now, I get when you read through that, it's a lot easier said than done. So all you need is food and clothing, right? Some of you might already be thinking about your hobbies, but I can't live without my hobbies, right? Here it is. Like God isn't against your finances or your treasure, but he is uh, all about where you're storing that treasure. He is uh, how you use that treasure, you feel me on that, right? So that's expanding on, on the first point. So it's not a question of whether or not it's good to be rich or not. It's whether you're godly or not. The second one is a little bit, uh, it's kind of a punch. The second one is that money, and it's kind of an expansion on point one, money isn't bad. Let me, I'll say that again, saying it from the pulpit. Money is not bad, but it is dangerous, Money isn't bad, but it is dangerous. And I'll expand on that as to why. But first, let's go back to 1 Timothy 6. This is the second half of Paul's argument. This is verses 9 through 10. Paul writes, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, if you have your Bibles out, before I continue, I want you to underline that, right? Those who desire to be rich, because he's going to expand on that. He says, uh, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Again, he's not ripping on finances, but he is ripping on that's your end goal, there's going to be some consequences, right? And so he goes on. He says, for the love of money is a root, not the root, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now you read through that and you read through that quickly and you hear that last part and you're like, man, some have wandered away from the faith. Well, let's look at two things because we can go uh, theologically nerdy on all of this, right? So here, here's the first one. What Paul is saying is that these are people who desire to be rich on top of anything else, including their claimed love for the Savior. That even that does not satisfy them, and so they will lay snares for themselves as they pursue riches, You feel me on that? And so he then goes on to say that they have wandered on from the faith. And so the question then becomes, the question then becomes, 
where you really, if that is you, if you feel like, man, I want riches, I want to pursue that, uh, even in spite of who Jesus says I am, because I value riches, and if I could just get a little bit more, I'll have what I need, and you value that more than Jesus, then the question, as per 1 Timothy 6, is, were you ever really a Christian to begin with? That's really, it's kind of a gut punch, Right? The question is, were you ever really a Christian to begin with? A lot of questions in this section. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's a question. It's coffee, right? So as we move forward, what, what, what we're going to see in, in verses 1 through 6, and as we're expanding on verse 1, what we're going to see is that our wallets and our theology are going to collide, right? Now, that's kind of one of those like unspoken things in the church. You don't really want to talk about finances in your wallets. And quite frankly, I really don't know why, but I could, I could understand why because of, you know, stories and misuse and, you know, poor use of finances and stuff like that. But that does not take us away at the fact that there is still a collision with our wallets, our finances, and theology. Because number one, what we believe shapes how we live, Money is not separate from who you say Jesus says you are. Money is not separate from the identity he is giving you by purchasing you through his blood on the cross. Okay? It's not separate. So what you believe shapes how you live. That's been uh, kind of a mantra that we've been kind of pushing for several months now, like all of 20. 18? We're in 17. We're in 2017, right? All of 2017, that's been, that's been the mantra, right? Like, what you believe shapes how you live. Number two, as to why our wallets and our theology are colliding. Because, this is the second reason, money is dangerous and our hearts, as per Jeremiah, are deceptive. So, we must realize that what we have in our wallets, what you have in your wallets right now, is a good and gracious gift from God. Is a good and gracious gift from God that should actually help us to understand what's really going on inside of us. I don't know what you make. I don't know if you're generous or not. I don't know any of that. But what your wallet is ultimately going to tell you is reflect whether you're godly, generous or not. I I, I don't know. I don't know what you make. You know what I mean? And that's not the point right now. The point is, however, that if you bust out your wallet as a reminder that this is what I have, what I have here is a gift from God, a good, gracious gift from God this is going to help me better understand what I'm really all about. Because the heart is deceitful and no one lies to you more than you. Okay? So that's why our wallets and our theology are going to collide today. Right? We're ultimately, what I would say through this teaching, you're ultimately going to come to this position of, man, where do I land when it comes to my wallet and my theology? Theology matters. Hashtag that, right? Okay, let's keep going forward. Um, So in light of that, in light of money being a good and gracious gift from God that helps us understand what's inside of us, let's look at now Matthew 6. This won't be up on the screens, I don't think. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. This is Jesus. Sweating. So he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. And remember that language because we're going to come back to it in verses 2 and 6. 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, again, it's a reminder of wallets and theology, right? Wallets and theology. Your wallet is going to be an indicator of what's really inside of you because ultimately what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 is, man, you could talk all day about how much of an awesome Christian you are, but when it comes to your wallet, I'm really going to see where your heart lies, right? I'm really going to see how this is, how who you claim to be reflects in the daily, right? And so now it becomes a personal and self uh, evaluation of our hearts. But the trick is that you got to be honest with yourself, right? And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at several, or we looked at four categories uh, of, yeah, just four categories in scripture regarding um, uh, the rich and the poor. Um, if you go onto our website, I can't remember. It was James chapter two for sure. I expand on these a lot more then. Don't have a lot of time to expand on them here. But here are four biblical categories of wealth that we see in scripture. And uh, just like we did in chapter two, we're going to talk about two of them. The first one is the godly poor. Okay. The godly poor. Now here's what we would ultimately expand and define on as the godly poor. The godly poor is those who are financially poor. However, their worth and I want you to remember this, their worth and their identity is rooted in the finished work of Christ, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't struggles. That doesn't mean that life isn't hard, but that their worth, their value, their meaning, and their identity is rooted in Jesus. Number two, the ungodly rich. You feel me on this? The ungodly rich. These are those who are financially uh, foolish. I was going to say another word. Financially foolish and uh, who often display a false sense of humility. Bless you, right? Uh, who often display a false sense of humility. Now, what do I mean by uh, financially foolish? You, you know what I mean, right? You get that paycheck and, and then you blow it, right? Amazon, you know, you just start spending because you are a prime customer. And so there is free two-day shipping, Right? You get that paycheck and it's all about Amazon. Or maybe you dive into whatever your hobbies are. And after uh, you're done, you come to realize, I haven't saved any money. Rent is still due, but I got this really cool Xbox, right? Those are the financially foolish and unwise decisions, okay? Now, those who, are, uh, who display a false sense of humility, that because maybe they don't have a, a lot of money or they don't make a lot of money, whatever that looks like, they, they brag about it. Look how humble I am. Look how much I don't make. I am better because I am poor. That's a false sense of humility. The next one, the godly rich, right? They're such a thing. The godly rich. The godly rich are generous, and we're going to talk about this later on, but they, they are generous. They are good stewards, and we're going to expand on stewardship in a couple of minutes, so I'm not going to go into detail about that right now, but the godly rich are incredibly generous. They are good and great stewards of all that God has given them, and this is what I love about uh, those who are godly and, and, and rich. Um, they live a countercultural life in spite of their socioeconomic status. 
what, 365 times out of the year? That's an entire year, right? 365, right? 20, 24 hours a day, right? You can go on, you can, you can turn on the TV and see that there are tons of infomercials like at 3, 4 in the morning. I've heard, right? And so you can, you can do that. And so the, the point here is that culture is always communicating and enticing you with something that you should have more of what you already have, the latest and coolest edition of X, Y, and Z. Someone who is godly and rich lives countercultural to those enticements. Now, I will say, and you might be in that chair and saying, uh, man, that's, that's definitely not me. I probably associate more with, with the, maybe the godly poor. So at pre-service, we were, we were shooting around some, some facts. And what I mean by pre-service is in the back, we, we, a couple of us have a meeting, and we were shooting, bouncing around some facts about, about wealth. And uh, there's a couple of facts that we found. So, so for, for starters, the, the big one was um, if you make at least... 25,000 a year. That's what is it? That's gross, right? So if you make 25,000 a year, you're automatically in the top 2% of the world. Like we're looking at this globally, right? You're automatically in the top 2% of the world, right? There was this other website. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll post on social media. I thought it was really cool. It's kind of convicting. It's where you, you put your, your country and then you put your, your salary, whatever that is, and it will compare and tell you where you stand compared to everyone else in the rest of the world. And so there was this place near, uh, it was in Southeast Asia. I can't remember the name. I was talking about it earlier this morning where I learned that my salary, if I were to, if I were to give my salary, I would fully fund 381 doctors in this part of Southeast Asia, which was pretty nuts right? Like it was, it was insane. Now the idea behind that was, uh, you're rich. If you got here in a car, you're, you're rich, right? Uh, students, cause you guys are all up there hanging out. I'm talking to y'all. Yes. Hi y'all. Yeah. The Xboxes that you play, you're rich. I called you out in front of everybody, right? <laughs> okay. The, you're, 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 you're rich, right? So, so when we're looking at the godly rich, we should be looking at characteristics of generous stewards who live countercultural to what the world says around them, right? And then the last category is the ungodly rich. The ungodly rich, they value treasure. And again, this might be you. You might be in this chair. I, I don't know. But the ungodly rich are those who value their treasure so much. You know why? Because you can purchase that identity, you value your treasure so much because you can ultimately purchase your identity. You know, you want to look like a hipster? Man, just go to the thrift store in Banana Republic and pfft, whatever, right? You can purchase your identity. And so there is not only a lack of value, but no submission to the lordship of Jesus and what he's done. So those are the four categories. Again, you can go back to James chapter 2, the uh, sermon. Uh, I can't remember the title, but I expanded on that a lot more then. So in light of those four categories, what we're looking at specifically is the godly rich and the ungodly rich. All right, we're looking at these two categories. So with that being said, let's, let's go to James verses uh, 2 through 6, if you got your Bibles. All right, quick coffee break. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, it's like a workout. 
Okay, here we go. Thank you all for being patient. Verse 2 through 6, he writes, and again, uh, in this section, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of bounce around a little bit, right? But we're going to get to some, some core points in a second. So he writes, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat uh, your flesh like fire, right? Pretty harsh. The last part we're going to spend some time on, he writes, you have laid up your treasure or you have laid up treasure in the last day. Here's what he is saying, and then I'll expand on the rest of the verses. In that opening section of verses two through six, this is what James is saying to the rich. He is saying, you have so much stuff. You have so much stuff that moths are literally eating your clothes. Like you got jackets and shirts and pants and whatever that you don't even use. And moths are eating them up. You have so much wealth stored up. You have so much wealth stored up that it is now beginning to corrode. Right? That's where he's, he's getting at in these verses. And then, in light of that, he says, you have laid your treasure in the last days. Right? Remember I told you a couple of months ago, we're going to talk about difficult things. He's talking about hell. He is saying that you have banked on the wrong things that you wanted a reward, you've received your reward on earth. And miseries are now coming. That's what he is saying. It's a really harsh word, right? That miseries are now coming because you have banked on the wrong thing. You have trusted in the wrong thing. Your treasure, your worth, your value is on things that you have purchased. Your identity is based off of something that you bought, not something that Jesus has already done. And so he says, mods are eating your stuff, your wealth is corroding, miseries are coming upon you, right? Miseries are coming upon you. He goes on to say, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, so they're ripping off their workers, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these people are being treated uh, um, poorly. There's injustice toward them as employees. They are crying out to God in light of this injustice, and God has heard their prayers, and he is responding And he goes on to say, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Again, you've gotten your reward. You're living it right now. And in the last day, miseries are coming because you banked on the wrong thing. You put your trust in the wrong thing. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Many commentators debate on this section. Some people say that when he writes, you've condemned uh, and murdered the righteous person, he is saying that some commentators believe that they're referring to, that James is referring to Jesus. Other commentators believe that they are referring to those workers, right? Specifically the Christian. He does not resist you. Here's, here's what James is getting to in this section, right? This is where we're going to expand a little bit. I've kind of expanded on some of the language. Here's what he's getting to. James is talking about ownership, and he is ultimately, uh, well, what I'm going to ultimately go at is that ownership directly opposes stewardship. Ownership directly opposes stewardship. And what James is talking about in this section is ownership. Now we need to answer those questions, right? 
what is ownership and what is stewardship? Before we answer those questions, we need to go to the source, right? We need to go back to the beginning. So let's go to Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Yeah, we're going all the way back, right? So uh, this is Genesis 2. He writes, uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Elsewhere in Genesis, after God creates man and woman, he, t- woman, he tells them, Be fruitful and multiply, right? So what we see in Genesis 1 is that God creates everything. He creates the animals. He creates mountains that we don't have. He creates the oceans. He creates landscape. He creates all the things, right? And he calls them good. Then he creates man. And what does he say about man? That he was? No? Okay. Very good. Okay. That's, that's what it says. Um, he says very good, right? So He creates man, and upon that time, what Adam and Eve understand is that they were created by God, and everything that they are now about to do, cultivate the land and be fruitful and multiply, is a responsibility that God is entrusting them with. They first understand that all of this has been created by God, therefore all of this belongs to God. Now, because God is generous and good, he is then giving them responsibility to cultivate, to multiply, and to be fruitful. That is a beautiful picture of stewardship. But then Genesis 3 comes along. And in Genesis 3, what Adam and Eve do is that they exchange stewardship for ownership. That it was no longer about what God said, and it was no longer about what God did, but it was, I kind of want to be like God. I think I can do this better. I think I can... Expand on this and improve. That's the difference. In one example, from what we see pre-Genesis 3, we see a godly gift of stewardship. Post-Genesis 3, we have seen stewardship turn into ownership. And some of you might fall right now under ownership because you don't want to be a steward. Because you think stewardship is only, you know, maybe serving on Sundays. Right? So let's look at three things of what ownership is. Ownership is number one. Number one is uh, I don't need God. Man, I don't need God. I don't need to submit to God. I don't need to trust God because everything that I've done is, just as I said, everything that I've done. I don't need God for what I've already done, right? Or what I'm doing. The second thing is, and again, I could expand on these much more. Uh, Maybe you could do so at, at our community group. The second thing is, what I have doesn't belong to God. It's actually mine. So the things that you have, you are ultimately saying, these are mine. I've bought them. I deserve them. These are all going to be mine. Now, let's pause there and let's go back to verses 2 through 6. Because the first thing James says is that you're a hoarder, right? You're a hoarder because you have a ton of clothes, you have a ton of shoes, you have a ton of wealth that's corroding and moths are eating it. So he's calling them hoarders. And then he calls them, uh, he says that, that they're, they're ripping their employees off, right? Through fraud. Okay. Those are two things James pokes at. First one is you're a hoarder. I don't know if you are. If you are, maybe this is for you, right? So you're a hoarder. Have you ever seen the show hoarders? Is that what it is? Cause I haven't seen it, but I've seen clips. 
right? It's called Hoarders. Now, if you have not seen this show, it's people who live in their houses, and I don't know what other way to say it, but they ultimately live not just with a ton of stuff, but sadly and tragically often live even within their own filth. Like it's, it's, and, I, and I mean that in the most as-a-matter-of-fact way, right? I don't mean that insulting, right? But that's not the trippy part, right? I mean, it kind of is. Like as you're looking from the outside in, you're like, oh, you know, this is kind of a disaster. But that's not the trippy part. The trippy part is when you go to a hoarder and you tell them that they're a hoarder, it goes straight over their head, Right? It goes straight over their head. Like, man, this is, you're living in filth. This is horrible. There's a ton of stuff. And they're looking at you like, this is the daily. What are you talking about? Right? When you hoard, particularly, especially when we, when we indulge in our sin, right? We become like hoarders. Because when someone comes and speaks in you to call you out, you ever realize when you're like, I'm not that bad? I don't know it wasn't that bad, was it? Homie, it's pretty bad, right? So what sin does, what ownership does, is that it blinds you to the truth. That's so much that you don't even know that you're sitting in a lie. You don't even know that you're living in it. It blinds you to the truth, right? The third thing about ownership is uh, I'm in control, and uh, this, is, this is my life, right? And so you might bank on how you were raised. You might bank on your background, and uh, you might say, man, where I've gone, I've gotten here because of me. I've done these things, therefore I'm in control, therefore I can suppress God because I don't see him at work in my life anyway because all I have is what I deserve, right? So that's ownership. Everything is completely flopped upside down. So in contrast to that, we look at what is stewardship. And stewardship first begins with identity. Now, we hammer this a lot, Sundays and community group, but it's that important because you and I are so quick to forget about it. So when we're talking about stewardship, the first thing that we need to look at is identity. And that identity is that I belong to God, that if you belong to God, that is where you must start, regardless of where you find yourself. That is where you must start. That I belong to God because God sent his son to die on a cross for sinners and in exchange gave me his righteousness. And upon giving me his righteousness, gave me a new identity. You must start with your identity because once you're able to start in your identity and look at what God has done, who God is, what God is doing, then everything else starts to come out of that. So out of that identity, when we're talking about stewardship, the second thing uh, becomes everything I have belongs to the Lord. So in light of your identity, in light of who you are moving out of that, the next thing now is everything that I have belongs to the Lord because everything that you have has literally been a gift. It has been a gift. And I'm not knocking on hard work. If you're a hard worker, that's awesome. High five, that's awesome. And what you have is a gift. What you have in front of you and on your plate is a gift. And when you realize that, because of your identity, it leads you to the third thing, and that's generosity. Right? Generosity. 
It leads us to generosity. And I might be jumping ahead too much, but maybe I'll just repeat myself. But it leads us to generosity because we are so grounded in our identity and grounded in the fact that God has entrusted us with uh, what we have, right? That we are now generous because God displayed the ultimate form of generosity by sending his son to die on a cross. You can't knock generosity and say that you love Jesus, right? Generosity is something that comes out. So practically speaking, if you got those five jackets, give three of them away. You don't use them anyway, right? Don't tell me, don't tell me you're waiting for that occasion. It snowed 13 years ago. It's not coming for a while. Like give those jackets away. You know what I mean? You have stuff that you can give away and you, and you know you have stuff you can give away. And another result of generosity is because you understand that this stuff isn't yours anyway, right? Number one, this stuff isn't yours anyway. Everything is literally held with an open hand. Everything is literally held with an open hand. And number two, you understand um, theologically that one day you and I have an expiration date and the stuff that we have, you're not taking with you anyway. I'm not saying don't leave a legacy or a heritage. I'm not saying that. Right? But what I am saying is don't bank on your stuff because it's not going with you anyway. Remember, God isn't opposed to treasure. The significance is where you store that treasure. Right? That's the significance. And I just said that sentence, right? So where we store our treasures of significance because some of you rather indulge in the temporary joy of sin instead of pursuing contentment in Jesus and his eternal promises. Now, we talked about that in 1 Timothy 6. Now, when he's talking about contentment, let me, let me tell you about contentment, because it's easier said than done, and I'll explain why. But let me tell you about contentment. You need to pursue it. Contentment isn't just like this state of being that you land in. Contentment is literally something that you pursue because of what you see revealed to you in Scripture. So when Paul, or God through Paul, says, all you really need is food and clothing, and you might say, yes, I totally get that. But do you? Do you really get it? Especially if you're an Amazon Prime member. Like, that's hard for me at times. Okay? Let's just, let's just call it what it is. Right? It is difficult to get there when you say, man, all you need is food and clothing. Yes, all you need is food and clothing. Not the hobbies. Not the Amazon. Uh, not the Netflix. I don't know what other hobbies people have because I don't really indulge in many. Right? So whatever your thing is, I get that it's easier said than done. However, the goal here in light of godliness is pursuing contentment. That means there is an active involvement on your behalf to pursue contentment as a result of godliness because it's not whether or not you should be rich or not. It's whether you're godly or not. It's whether at the end of this season, at the end of this year, are you more like Jesus? Are you more like Jesus? Are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? Are you more like Jesus this month than you were last month? That's the goal. Godliness is going to be the goal, right? Additionally, the danger of wealth, the danger of wealth and the deceit of our hearts places us, and I I love this visual, it places us on a treadmill chasing after something we hope is finally going to grant us peace. If you chase wealth, like you are pursuing riches and you are listening to your deceitful heart, right? That's right. I'm like 
you know, dogging uh, your social media, like trust your heart hashtag, right? Don't. It's hor- that's a horrible idea, right? Your heart is deceitful. And if you're pursuing riches, you place yourself on a treadmill chasing after something that you hope will finally grant you peace. The irony of that is that God sent his son to die on a cross for sinners, purchasing your sin through his blood, redeeming you so that you would have a new identity so that you would no longer be at war with God because he has reconciled you to the father. That's the irony that you have peace because of the work of the son. So stop chasing after something you hope is going to give you peace when not only is it not, you already have it through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The last few things, and I've already talked on these. This is a a brief review, recap stewardship at the end of the day produces a couple of things. And we've already talked about all these, so I'm not going to expand on them too much. And this is in no particular order. The first one is stewardship produces generosity. Now, I'm not going to expand on that just yet because I have really cool news and I'll, I'll wait till the end of this. So it produces generosity. The second thing that it produces is wisdom. It produces wisdom, right? Wisdom means you have a plan. It's a good thing. I promise plans are good. That's all I got. I don't really have anything else. Plans are good. So stop trying to be organic because you're misusing that word anyway. Okay? Plans are good. Right? So if stewardship produces wisdom and we're looking specifically at finances, uh, a result of wisdom is something like, I don't know, a budget right? Like that's a result of wisdom. John Wesley used to say, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can, right? There's some organic plans. So uh, as, uh, other than that, like a budget is a result of wisdom. How you spend your money is a result of wisdom. How much you give is a result of wisdom, right? Those are all really good godly things. The third one is contentment. We just talked about that. That's satisfaction. But again, the trick there is, or the goal there is that you need to pursue it. It's an active involvement on your behalf. And then the last thing is a reminder, stewardship is a result of identity. That we understand who we are in Christ. And as a result of that, we know what we must do with what we've been given, right? Now, here's the encouraging piece going back to generosity, right? In a couple of weeks, we're going to end the year. In a couple of, uh, maybe in a minute or so or an hour or so, we're going to have a members meeting. And we're going to talk about all that that God has done. And I just can't hold it anymore. And so uh, I'll just share a little bit of it today or from the pulpit, right? And so we're going to be ending the year, right? And uh, Lord willing, by God's grace, right, we are praying through several things for 2018. And that's all really cool. But we're talking about specifically generosity. Uh, Here's what I want to tell you about generosity. Thank you. Thank you. You have been, you, the the church that is storehouse, have been so uh, incredibly consistent and generous in your giving That as we go towards 2018, man, for the first time in like three years, this is exciting, right? Uh, We have a surplus of money 
that's really, that's awesome. That's number one. No, one, we have a surplus. And that surplus is immediately going back into ministries for 2018. Both ministries that are internal and missional and outreach. All right? About 20% of our 2018 budget is going directly to ministries to equip you and to go and make disciples so that more and more would come to know Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is y'all. Right? That, so, so what that does, is it produces, man, it produces a missional mindset. It produces an understanding that, man, as the church, now there's, there's like this, this uh, movement happening. As the church, we are going to go and make disciples. You have been faithful. So please continue to be faithful. But before 2018, simply hear thank you. Thank you for your generosity, for your sacrifice, for your patience, for wading the waters with us when we didn't even have answers, right? Thank you for being the church. Thank you for that. And so my goal as we move to 2018 is to be a church known by, and I mean this sincerely, not just because I have it written down, but I, my goal is to be a church. This is, this is us. This isn't you and then me. This is, this is us. My goal is for us to be a church that is known by our generosity as stewards, right? A generosity, excuse me, known by our generosity as stewards, not as a status of wealth. I didn't ask you whether you were rich or poor. I asked you if you were godly and generous. That's what I asked. Okay? I wish to be known, I desire to be known as a church that is known for our godliness from contentment, not godless materials. That is ultimately my desire for 2018. So as we close up, Thank you guys so much. This isn't like we're shutting down, right? Um, but like, thank you so much for all that. We'll expand on that later on this afternoon. But apart from that, that's my desire, that we are known for our generosity because we are stewards, because we understand uh, the price that was paid for us, ultimately. Join me in prayer.